have your Bibles this seated and turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11, chapter 11. Jason, try that picture I uh, asked you about today. There's the other picture I was trying to show you this morning. That's John O'Leary and uh, his wife and his four children. And so uh, I just, isn't that quite a difference? Quite a difference from that little nine-year-old boy that was burned over 100% of his body. You notice you hardly ever see him a picture with his hands are visible. His hands are almost always because all of his fingers have been burned off. And so even today, he tends to, he doesn't always, but he tends to have his hands hidden whenever he, um, whenever he takes a picture. So anyway, uh, God did something beautiful in his life because he chose to believe uh, the truth and not to believe that he was simply a victim who had nothing to offer. All right, our series is Revealing Jesus as Champion. I really believe that is the idea behind the book of Revelation, and so we're getting uh, halfway or so through the book. So look in Revelation chapter 11, and uh, we'll read the first three verses, probably do the first 14 uh, before we're done tonight. So Revelation chapter 11, first three verses. John writes, Then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave, the, leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So tonight we want to talk about how we can be uh, true to the mission, uh, true to what God's called us to be, even though it can be very difficult. It is difficult for a lot of people around the world today. Christians have been a primary target of uh, militant Islamists in Burkina Faso uh, since 2019, uh, when approximately 70 Christians were targeted, uh, the five churches were attacked, and since then, it's just gotten worse. In 2022, uh, their, their activities increased in the southwestern part of the country, resulting in numerous, numerous destroyed churches, the murder of several pastors, which I found terribly alarming and sad. As many as 10,000 Christians have fled their homes. It's one of these stories you never hear about, right? You don't hear these stories very much. 10,000 Christians have fled their home due to uh, violence and threats. More than 1.7 million people. This is just in Burkina Faso. 1.7 million people have been displaced. Uh, two years ago when Muslim militants attacked their vi vi village, there was one young couple who fled. Uh, they're kind of stuck in one of these misplaced uh, village places right now. And uh, some people got a chance to go to that, to that place and uh, give out Bibles. And think about this. Uh, you've been run out of your home, your church has probably been burned, you can't live in your own place uh, because of your faith in Christ. And now you're in this displaced encampment and uh, somebody comes in to give you, they, they had to leave so fast they couldn't even leave, they couldn't even get their Bible, they didn't even have a Bible. And so that's the picture, you, show, you can show the other picture, Jason, that's actually, these are them giving out Bibles and they said that one particular young couple was so happy to get a new Bible, they were actually weeping to have their Bible back. Now think about that. The reason they got ran out of town, the reason why they've been attacked, the reason they're misplaced is because of their faith in Christ and His Word. It'd be really easy, if you think about it, it'd be really easy for them to say they're passing out Bibles and say, hey, I'm done with that. 
<laughs> that got me in that got me in enough trouble as it is. That's why I'm here. That's why I don't have my home. That's why I don't have a job. That's why I don't have a farm anymore. Uh, I don't have anything else to do with it. But the idea is they were so uh, in love with Jesus, so grateful for what God's done for them, even though it's cost them everything to get a copy of God's Word to be able to hold and read for themselves caused them to weep with tears of joy. It's tough to stay true to God during hard times, right? It's really, really hard. And uh, one of those hard things can be things like sickness. It can be things like family turmoil. It can be things like emotional turmoil, job turmoil, loss of some kind in your life. And the natural temptation when you face loss, you face hardship, is to do what? Just kind of pull into yourself and survive. Just look for some way uh, to find some kind of relief. That's what pain does, right? Pain sends those sensors into your brain, and you think, man, I just need to find some kind of relief from this hardship here. And by the way, as Christians, if we're going through a hardship and there is relief, by all means, seek it, right? Go to the doctor. Go to the, go to the counselor. Get the medicine. You know, whatever it is that if there is something God-ordained that can help relieve the pain, there's no, there, you know, you get no gold stars in heaven for enduring pain that you didn't have to. You know, by all means, go for the help if you can find the help, but don't abandon God's mission. That's the thing. That's the thing I loved about that story, and that's the thing I see here in Revelation chapter 11 is whatever happens, don't abandon the mission that God has given you. We're going to see that in the church of these two witnesses here. Uh, most of the commentaries that I read uh, this last week as I've been studying uh, Revelation chapter 11 uh, started out by saying, this is the most difficult chapter in Revelation to interpret. <laughs> As a pastor, that gives you a lot of comfort when you read that to start out with. This is going to be the most difficult chapter yet. And there are some difficult things in it. There's some things that we have to kind of guess at in it. But I think the message here is really clear. So I'm very grateful that we have a message here that we can know. What we have here in Revelation are some things that we can see with certainty and some things that when John wrote this, while uh, these things are going to happen in the future. John wrote it to some people that are really going to help. He wrote it to these people in his day that they will get encouragement for it. And so it's good for them and it's good for us. And I think while some of the details we're going to have to say, not sure about all of that, I think we can get the, I'm sure we can get the gist of the message. So what I'm going to say tonight is this. As we seek to, to say true to God's mission, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though it costs us something at times, we can trust in God's protection. We want to keep proclaiming God's message, and we need to expect some persecution along the way. Okay, that's where we're going tonight. So let's talk about it. First of all, I want to talk about God's protection. If we're going to live in a world uh, as God's people in a world filled with ungodly stuff, we need to depend on God's protection. And I think that's what we see here in the first part of Revelation chapter 11. Look, if you will, in the first two verses. John uh, says, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. The angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 or three, or 42 months or three and a half Year. So John's been a spectator so far. He's watching this vision unfold, and now he actually participates in the vision. He says, all right, take a read and go out and measure the temple of God and the altar. And it's a little bit 
surprising to us. Why? What's the temple doing? Where did the temple come from? We don't know that there's going to be a temple here. If you look at it today, it seems like that's a really kind of a long shot for there to be a temple in Jerusalem. Right now, there's the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim worship place, the Dome of the Rock. According to Muslims, it's a place where the prophet Muhammad was taken up into heaven for an encounter with God. Of course, you and I don't believe that. That's what Muslims believe, and that's where the temple used to be. And so that's not going to be given up easily right and so that leads some people to think that the temple is symbolic of the people of God as a general uh, general rule other people think it really is a literal temple now the fact that there's not a temple there today uh, the fact that the Muslims have the Dome of the Rock there uh, today does not mean there won't be a temple in days to come two, two reasons I would say for that uh, one is uh, it's the Middle East y'all <laughs> Things can turn around in a hurry in the Middle East. You just, I mean, that's a vol it's been a volatile place for years and years and years. And who knows what's going to happen in the next five or ten years. We just don't know. The other possibility, though, is in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, the beginning uh, of the opening of the, of the six seals, it says, Behold, I, I, was, uh, I looked at a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. As I said there, the possibility this might be the Antichrist because this is the start of seven seals, and it's, they're all bad. And this one doesn't look all that bad, but he's going out to conquering and to conquer for himself. This is not for God now, okay? This is probably an evil, an evil situation. Perhaps it's the Antichrist. Perhaps he's the one that sees the temple being rebuilt because he's going to end up setting himself up as God in the temple. So perhaps the Antichrist is actually one that starts leading the way there. We don't know. We can't, it's just hard for us to know that. But the idea is this. When God tells John to me, the word measuring, uh, typically in the Bible means to protect. Notice it says to measure the temple and its people. So measuring is a sign of ownership. If you drew a, um, if you do a land survey on your land, you do that, why? Because you own it. You want to see where your limits of ownership is, right? That's kind of the idea here is God's doing an ownership thing, and it's a sign of preservation or a sign of protection. God is saying, now remember, horrid things are happening in these days. Remember, we have, we have all manner of earthquakes. You got hail falling like blood. You got demon locusts running around that just wigs everybody out. Uh, I mean, there's all manner of tragedy, heartache, catastrophes going on. Sometimes a fourth of the earth is, uh, is done away with. A fourth of the population is done away with. Most of the grass is done away with. I mean, it's amazing the kind of tragedies that are happening here. And God in the, waits till Revelation 11 and says, All right, I want you to measure the people of God as a way of saying what? My protection, my hand is on them. Watch this now. There will be martyrs in the church. People are going to die, but God's protection means the church will not be destroyed, okay? It says don't measure, the, and the word for the temple here that you're going to measure is the holy place. The holy of holies and the holy place. The court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles are, are, are typically worshiping at, that is not to be measured because he says that's been given over to the Gentiles. In this context, I don't think that the word Gentiles means all Gentiles. I think it means unbelieving Gentiles. 
uh, because God protects all of his people. He doesn't distinguish on, on the basis of race, right? And so the unbelievers are not going to have the protection of God like the believers will. And when he says, and as we look here, we see what things are happening in context, what's going to happen in Revelation tonight, it doesn't look like God's protected his people. It looks like evil is winning. That's why you never want to take a point in history, a point in your life, and drop a pen and say, God's not winning, <laughs> right? Because the last story's not been told yet. And as Rhonda led us in singing this morning about expecting or seeing a, was it seeing a victory? See a victory. We can expect to see a victory, right? We can expect God to work this thing out in his way. And so it doesn't mean, or his protection doesn't mean we don't get hurt. It doesn't mean we don't get sick. It doesn't mean we don't lose our jobs. It doesn't mean people don't say mean things about us. It doesn't mean that we can't have our dreams accomplished. It doesn't mean that everything's going to work out well for us. What it does mean is that he will protect us, watch this, from the evil one. What Jesus prayed in John 17. The message for us tonight is God's going to protect us. He won't give us, He won't give Satan full reign in our life. We can expect God to protect us and see us through anything for our good, His glory, and that we won't fall away. We don't have to fall away. We don't have to abandon our faith. God's going to protect us spiritually. Here's the message. And by the way, I hope this means something to somebody because this hit me about 11 o'clock the other night when I was laying down trying to sleep, and it just hit me right out of the blue. What he's saying here is a value and a priority for a believer is I'd rather die than disobey. That's what the protection's about, and that's what happens in Revelations, what happens in Acts. You come down, and that's what's happening around the world in some of these countries. They can keep from being persecuted by just stopping their faith, by just not going to church and not sharing their faith and not trying to win anybody to Jesus, and then they don't get persecuted anymore. The message for us is to stay true to the mission of Jesus if it costs you your life. I've got a friend of mine that actually says this to his grandchildren. If it comes down to the place, and, and he told me, he said, I told, I've gathered my grandchildren, said, if it comes down to the place sometime in your lifetime where you've got to choose to either die or obey Jesus, your grandfather tells you to die rather than deny your, deny your Jesus. That's a hard word, right? It's a word that hopefully we don't have to face. It's a word we don't want to have to face. But that's the message, and that's the message of Christ. And that's what John tells the seven churches here in the book of Revelation. Be faithful unto death. To him who overcomes gets to sit with me on the, uh, 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 on the throne of life. Don't give in to the Nicolaitans. Don't give in to immorality. Don't compromise your faith. What's he saying? He's saying what? The, the value of Christ, your relationship with God is more important than your life. David said, thy loving kindness is better than life. Look, if you will, in Revelation 11:2. 2. But leave out the court of the Gentiles, which is outside the temple, God's people. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 
months. Notice it's given to them. They don't take it. They can't do anything that God doesn't allow. God has the restraints. He knows how far he's going to allow people to go. He knows how far he's going to allow the disasters and the catastrophes to happen. And God has set the limits. And you and I, while we may, I'm fairly uncomfortable with some of the limits that God sets, but uh, we can trust that he's going to give us the ability, like John O'Leary's mom said to him, grab on to God's hand and he will see you through and we will be here for you. And that's what we need to say as a church. Grab onto God's hand. He'll see you through. We're going to be here for each other. So it focuses us. It's a really strong word for us in our day. It focuses us that obedience, obedience and faithfulness to God is more important than living out my passion or seeing my dreams come true or living my best life or whatever else it might be. I heard the story of a guy named John Kenneth Galbraith. He was a, a famous um, person of means and when Lyndon Johnson was president of the United States they uh, knew each other and and he called Mr. Galbraith one day and uh, his secretary answered the phone and Mr. Galbraith had laid down for a nap and the phone rang and uh, he said um, get me Ken Galbraith this is Lyndon Johnson and his secretary said he is sleeping Mr. President and he said not to disturb him and she said uh, well, he said, well, wake him up. <laughs> I want to talk to him. And she said, no, Mr. President, I work for him, not for you. And uh, Galbraith said when he called the president back, he said, I want that woman in the White House. <laughs> I want her. We need to remember who it is we work for, who it is that we belong to. It is God not ourselves, not the favor of the world, not how we can be the most popular person. So first of all, we trust God's protection. Secondly, we stay true to God's proclamation. We stay true to God's proclamation. During hard times, we keep sharing our faith. We keep telling people about Jesus. We keep looking for ways to help people understand who Christ really is. In verse 3, we hit two witnesses. And uh, this is where it really gets kind of interesting because uh, they appear without any warning. All of a sudden, these just two guys just kind of uh, pop up here. Now, who they are is pretty unclear. We'll talk about that in a minute. What they do and what happens to them are very clear. And that's what we want to look at. That's what we want to make sure we stay on. The other issues about who they are and their personality and what, and what they represent, some of that is hard to unravel. So let's look at it and we can talk about it uh, just a, a little bit. Look, if you will, in, uh, in Revelation chapter 11 and uh, look, if you will, in verse uh, 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days, that's three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. Clothed in sackcloth. So what we know, what we know about these guys is that they're two witnesses. They preach for three and a half years. Uh, they have uh, miraculous protection by God through supernatural power. Uh, we know that when their time is over, when their time of witnessing is up, God allows them to be killed. And then miraculously, three and a half days later, they're revived to life and taken to heaven. Now, who are they? Well, that's kind of fun to talk about, so let's talk about it a little bit. And remember, as we talk about the identity of the two witnesses, the short answer is, we don't know. John doesn't tell us. 
And so uh, there's, it's fun to look at the range of options that people go with here. Uh, people who love Jesus a whole lot uh, come down way, way all, over the, all over the range here of these kinds of things. So the idea is that we'll know what they're for, we'll know what our message is. Uh, the idea that we won't all agree what this stands for uh, doesn't mean that we can't still love Jesus an awful lot, right? So people that love Jesus a lot, just as committed to his word, come up with very different things. Some people, some people believe the two witnesses are symbolic. Uh, symbolic of either uh, the Old and New Testament, uh, the law and the prophets. Other ideas are the Word of God and the blood of Christ. Others are Israel and the church. Those are the most popular symbolic ideas. Others think they're, they're, they're literal two people, two men who prophesy. Uh, the most popular interpretation for the literal one is Moses and Elijah. And, and the reason this popular is Moses and Elijah, one thing is they're the two that showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Uh, they also represent the law and the prophets. Jesus said and, um, in Luke 24, 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures concerning uh, the things concerning himself. And so they're kind of representative of the law and the prophets. Some people think it's going to be Moses and Elijah. Other people say Mo, uh, Elijah and Enoch. Now think about Elijah and Enoch. Why would they pick Elijah and Enoch? Well, because they're the only two people who got out of this thing without dying. Elijah was carried on a whirlwind, uh, up at a whirlwind on chariots of fire. Enoch walked with God and he was not. And some people say Hebrews 9.27, and Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed unto man once to die. And so they feel like for that scripture to be fulfilled, these guys got to come back and die. Uh, I don't think I have to. <laughs> God get, I think if you, you know, find that kind of favor with God, you kind of get, all, you get a pass on that one. But anyway, some people believe, uh, believe that. Others think it's Peter and Paul, the two main characters of Acts. Others think it's two people raised up in that day, uh, kind of have the spirit of uh, Moses and Elijah, maybe the spirit of Peter and Paul, kind of, kind of in that tradition, whatever, but that's two people that live in this time and God raises them up to be uh, prophets in the future. Look at verses 3 and 4 and look at what, we, what we'll... So that's kind of fun to talk about. Look and see what we know. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy uh, 1,260 days, approximately three and a half years, especially if you count 360 days a year, the way the Jewish calendar did. Uh, clothed in sackcloth. Now these are, watch this, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So they preached three and a half years. We don't know exactly when. Some people think it's the beginning of the Great Tribulation time. If that's true, these guys may be how the 144,000 get saved. We've looked at earlier the 144,000 Jewish people that are saved during the tribulation. This may be, if you take it literal, this may be, uh, and it makes sense, this would be how these guys get saved. Other things, that there, it's in the middle of the tribulation. Some think it's the end of the tribulation period. We really don't know. It doesn't tell us that. What we do know, what we do want to focus on is they are given power to preach God's Word. They're given power to share God's God's, uh, God's word. And it goes back, the two lampstands, the, I, the background behind all of this is Zechariah chapter 4. And Zechariah chapter 4 talks about the lampstands. Listen to what it says in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And you almost, it's hard not, to, hard not to think of this when you read it. And he said to me, what do you see? And Zechariah says, I'm looking, there's a lampstand, solid gold with a bowl on top of it. 
And on the seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps, two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. Zechariah lived between the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. This was when the temple needed to be rebuilt. And it wasn't being done. And so Zechariah, along with Haggai, it was one of the guys, I mean Habakkuk, one of the guys that, that not Habakkuk either, <laughs> but one of the prophets that God called to encourage them to build the temple, okay? Ezra and Nehemiah is who I'm trying to think of. He called them to rebuild the temple. They'd stopped the work. And, and the two witnesses in that day was Joshua the high priest. It's not Joshua that followed Moses, okay? This is hundreds of years later. This is Joshua who was the high priest. Zerubbabel was the governor of Judea during that time. And so Zechariah preaches. They're the two olive stands. They're the two olive trees. They're the two witnesses. And he's trying to get them to stand up, rebuild the temple, bring revival to Israel. And he's preaching. That's the background. That's kind of the, the, what John has in the back of his mind or what the Holy Spirit has in the back of his mind. Now, look at it. Olive trees speak of fruitfulness and lampstands speaks of light. What is he saying? You guys are going to be the light of the world. Isn't that what Jesus said? You're going to abide in me. I'm going to abide in you. You're going to bear what? You're going to bear fruit, much fruit, more fruit. And so I saw, I saw a picture, one artist kind of idea of the background of Zechariah uh, chapter 4. You can go ahead and show that picture there because it's a beautiful kind of a picture. Look at what it is. So there's the lampstand giving off light and the pipes are going. Now, obviously, this can't really happen, but notice the picture. The picture is the pipes going to the tree, the olive oil flowing through. And I, like I said, you got to get this figurative, okay? So you can't actually make this happen, but this is kind of the picture God has given. That the lampstand is connected to the olive tree, and the olive oil is flowing to the lampstand to light the lamp. What is this saying to us? Abide in me, that my word abide in you, and you'll bear much fruit. It's this staying connected idea to the Holy Spirit. He supplies this constant, spontaneous, automatic supply of, of oil, which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, this constant supply of presence, of power, of witness flowing into us. Like I said this morning, we're not competent in and of ourselves. Our competency is in Christ. How many of you ever sung that song, Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, right? Well, that really is the idea here. Give me oil in my lap, keep me burnt, help me to stay connected, constantly abiding in Jesus. The idea is God supplies what we need for the task at hand, to stay true to him and to share his message. Look at Revelation verses 5 and 6, chapter 11. Anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Fire from heaven reminds you of Elijah once again. The plagues, uh, the water to blood reminds you of Moses once again. You got that kind of thing in the background. As they stay true, God provides what they need. Now it says, you know, if anybody opposes them, fire comes out of their mouth. Uh, now, if that's literal, I'd pay $5 to see it. How about you? <laughs> that would be something else. We don't know that that's literal fire. I mean, the Bible says that when the that picture of Jesus, there's a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't think there's actually a sword. I think that's symbolic of picture. And so the idea of fire coming out of their mouth uh, probably is the idea that, um, that they speak and it happens. They speak 
and it silences their critics. It silences what they want to bring uh, against them. And so the thing to notice here, also, not only they preach with power and they preach with fire, which is another symbolism of the Holy Spirit, but they preach in sackcloth. They preach in sackcloth. What is sackcloth? Sackcloth is a, is, is a rough, coarse uh, garment that they put on in times of mourning, in times of great sadness. And so they put on sackcloth as an expression of their great sorrow over people who are unbelieving. You see, when we speak of judgment and speak of hell, may we never speak in any other way than of a broken heart. It's the most awful thing I can think of, that somebody would die apart from Jesus. I've heard, I've heard people who are Christians who to glibly say, yeah, old souls say, they're going to bust hell wide open when they die. If you can't say that with a broken heart, I ask you not to say it. Because that is not the heart of Jesus. Yeah, you don't get what's coming to you, buddy. You're just late. Well, we all would apart from the blood of Christ, right? Our heart is not that they get what they deserve. Our heart is that everybody would come to Christ. I can remember as a young Christian, um, I was probably 19, 18, 19 years old, and uh, I was just kind of really starting to try to live for the Lord some, and they had asked me to take the offering up that day, and, um, you know, they, you know our, 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 our ushers in my church growing up, uh, they sat on the front row, and, uh, and then you took the offering up, and then you came back. Some guys would sit with their families, the rest of the people would sit on the front row, and I can remember I was sitting on the front row that day. I'd help take the offering up, and we had an evangelist, and he was preaching on the wheat and the tares. There are people who look like they're saved, sound like they're saved, people think they're saved, but they're not saved. And towards he's preaching an extremely evangelistic message during the midst of this revival. I can remember sitting on the front row. I was so glad I sat on the front row that day. Because I listened to this guy preaching. He's, I mean, he's preaching. I mean, he's preaching paint off the walls, okay? I mean, he's, he's after it. And I can remember he was standing kind of on this side of the pulpit. I could still see him with a finger up in the air like this. Tears. Literally, tears. I'd never seen anybody have tears coming down their face while they preached before. And I can remember thinking, I wish the people in the back could see what I'm seeing here. He is not happy about the message he's preaching. He's not glad. He is not. I've heard some preachers preach on hell or people talk about hell almost, almost with glee, almost like they were happy about it, you know. But these guys, these witnesses are preaching judgment. They're preaching it from a broken and then last of all, we can expect as we stay true to God's mission, as we enjoy his protection, and as we stay true to his proclamation, we can expect satanic persecution. We can expect satanic persecution. We're going to see a victory, but it isn't going to be getting out of this place unscathed. Look, if you will, in verses 7 to 13. Then when they finish their testimony, uh, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some people, uh, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, will celebrate by sending each other gifts. How different is that from the brokenheartedness of the prophets? They're gonna, they're gonna, it's going to be like a satanic Christmas time because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life 
from God entered them. They stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. Tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God. What happens here? tide turns against them for somehow we, we catch the beast and by the way uh, the word here is the beast not a beast probably um, the antichrist the first mention of the beast in revelation he's going to be mentioned uh, uh several more times before we get done with this in fact this is the first of 36 references uh to the beast probably like i said the antichrist he shows up makes war uh, kills the prophets now interesting the city is identified as sodom and egypt which Makes you wonder where it really is. But then it says where our Lord was crucified, so we know it's where. It's Jerusalem. Okay, that, 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 that puts it very, much, very, very easily. Why, did the, why, did, why is it turning against them all of a sudden? They're preaching with broken heart. They're preaching the truth about Jesus. They're prophesying, the Bible says. Why do people, why are they happy when they're killed? I, I don't know. I, my best guess, my best guess is that remember, this is during the time of the seven seals and the seven judgments, probably. And all these horrible things are happening on the earth. It could be these prophets are prophesying these things that are happening. And so because they're, pro and as I said, I can't stomp my foot, but I, I think it's the, the best guess I got at this particular time. Uh, if they're prophesying that the bloody hell and, and the locusts coming out of the abyss and all this kind of stuff, if they're prophesying all these things and it's happening, it could very easily be that what? The people of the world, the unbelieving world's blaming them for it. It's your fault. That's the only reason I can think of why they would celebrate or why they would say they're tormenting them, okay? I don't, that doesn't make sense that they would torment them unless they're blaming them for what's happening here. And so uh, they kill them. The Bible says that people from all over the world see their dead bodies in the streets. And y'all, for thousands of years, people have wondered how that would happen. I can remember as a child growing up and people talking about how would that happen? How could that possibly be? Well, we know how today. Satellite TV, <laughs> right? CNN, Fox News, NBC, they're all, you know, they, they can all easily broadcast that all over the world in a second, you know? It's, it's amazing how some of these things kind of come to true. We can see how it can be possible. It's one of those encouraging things as you look at things in Scripture and say, how in the world can this be possible? God has ideas we've never thought about. People in the 17th century never thought about cable TV, okay? Could never, could never fathom it. So God has things that you and I can't even fathom in our day. And so they don't bury their bodies. Y'all, which is a, the idea here is shame. It's heaping shame upon people. And when you stay true to the mission God's given you, and you stay true to share God's, God's word, to share God's testimony, share your testimony, and people don't believe you, what does Satan love to do? He loves to shame you. You're not very good at witnessing. You're not very good at, at teaching. You're not very good at being a witness for Christ. And that's just a low-down lie from the pit, and it smells like smoke, okay? Satan heaps shame. They're doing exactly what God wants them to do, okay? They're, they're God's witnesses, but this is a way of trying to heap shame upon the people of God, and that's what the, he loves to do whenever we're obedient. He loves to try to shame us. Then after three and a half days, um, they revive, and they ascend up into heaven. Um, once again, 
like to see that one. <laughs> Once again, we don't know symbolic, literal, what all, you know, we don't really know what all that's about exactly. But what we do know about is that Jesus triumphs. What looks like shame and what looks like defeat and what looks like we're losing can in an instant turn into a victory that we see for Jesus. Can in an instant be turned around. And that's, I think, the big message here about the resurrection is don't give up. Don't put a pin in it and say we're losing. Don't put a pin in it and say you're not doing a very good job as living a Christian. You don't know what God can do in just an instant. So remember, Satan persecutes horribly. But we are to stay trusting in God's protection and stay speaking God's truth and depending that we are going to see a victory. I was telling you uh, about John O'Leary this morning and um, about him being burned. Uh, the interview I heard with him the other day, um, he said he was uh, this mirror shaven uh, a while back. And uh, one of his small boys, you know, four or five years old or so, came, to, came in to watch him shave. And, uh, you know, he got his little plastic razor out, you know, and they're shaving together kind of a thing. And uh, while John's face is not scarred, he doesn't, that they were able to do miraculous work there, praise God, that his face doesn't look scarred. He says from his neck all the way down his torso is horribly scarred. And, um, you know, he said he's got one particularly long red scar that starts at his neck and goes all the way to the length of his torso. And it's just, it's just completely, his torso is completely disfigured. And so he said his five-year-old come in there and, um, you know, John's got his shirt off, his five-year-old's got his shirt off and they're shaving together and he starts rubbing John's belly, starts rubbing his side. And he says, Dad, my body's tan and smooth and your body's red and bumpy. <laughs> and he put his finger on that big, long red scar and he said, I love how your body's bumpy and red. <laughs> It looks so neat. And I thought of that. The scars on Jesus are horrible, right? They're beautiful to us, right? And you know what? Any emotional, physical, whatever kind of scars we might get for following Jesus, I think he thinks they're beautiful, right? You love me enough. To not worry about the shame that heaped upon you. Not worry about the people that thought you were crazy. Not worry about what it cost you um, friend-wise or money-wise or career-wise. If you were persecuted for loving and following me, I think those scars look beautiful to Jesus. Would you stand please with heads bowed and eyes closed? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Tonight, Rhonda, can we sing Amazing Grace a cappella for our invitational hymn? That would be good tonight. Why don't we do that tonight? Why don't we sing Amazing Grace as our invitational hymn? We'll just do it a cappella tonight and, uh, in just a moment. But let's pray first. And I want you to think, what, um, what is God's, how does this land with you? I mean, it's wired into us to run from persecution, to run from harm, uh, to run from hurt and pain and I do and you do and that's a good thing but there are times when you stand if it's for Jesus because he stood for us and because we owe everything to him and because his scars while they're horrific in some ways are also beautiful because they say what I love you I paid for you I died for you 
and your forgiveness and your freedom are found in my scars and in the resurrection. And sometimes the only way to bear witness to some people in a believable way is if we have to bear a scar of some sort. It may just be being left out. It may just be being laughed at. But while you're being laughed at, while it may cost you something, and it may be somebody watching, saying, I think he's serious. I think she really believes that. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your love, your grace, your worthiness. We thank you, Father, that it's an amazing thing that we can be your children. And God, as we look toward the end and we see some of the horrific things that will happen here, some of the people that will stand up and be faithful to death. God, may we be counted faithful whatever it is you call us to be and do. Rhonda, what number is Amazing Grace?